welcome to a podcast about Catholic things. This is Eric, the ambassador for common sense, and I'm here by myself. It is Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and generally uh, my family has their family party on that Wednesday night, so obviously we won't be recording a show tonight. Um, instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to thread together three old podcasts and kind of revive them. They were recorded way back when we first started recording. Um, I'm going to cut out the current events section, obviously. Um, dealing with the temptations of Christ, uh, it was mostly Dan's project, and he put together a line of reasoning that I had not heard anywhere else um, concerning each one of the temptations of Christ and why they were actually temptations and why they were important. Um, and I think it's worth listening to. And most of our listeners have joined us long since we recorded those. So that's why I am bringing those back up. Also, because I need something to play, because we're not going to record tonight. Um, so before I turn to those, I did want to talk a few minutes about a couple different things. Uh, number one, the election. It, it, was a, it was disheartening to see the Republicans not take the advantage. And there are certain areas where very obviously they're cheating. We knew they were going to, and now they're doing it, sometimes in the exact way that we knew they would cheat. You know, this constant counting of ballots when, I mean, it doesn't take long to count ballots. It never took long before, but, but we know what they're doing. And it's just whatever. The, the people there in those states have the power to stop it, and they're not stopping it. I don't mean the citizens. I mean the people who are in power, and the people who are in power don't want to stop that because uh, because that's how they're in power. So I I don't know what to say about that. I don't know I don't know how to turn this around to keep them from doing it again. They're going to do it. They did it, they did it in uh, 2020, and they're going to do it in 2024. In those states, I think good people can count those states as having been lost. They are, there's no more elections in those states, period. But uh, that's not what I wanted to talk about because it wasn't just those states that didn't show the kind of return we had expected. We thought there'd be a red wave. No, I didn't think there'd be a red wave. Some people thought there'd be a red wave. Um, I didn't think there would be because of the cheating but for other reasons as well, and that's what I want to talk about, and it's I'm not hearing anyone address this. They talk about the number of young voting, the number of women voting because of abortion, because the some of the Democrats have pulled out uh, the old marijuana case and got some numbers up because of that. The women who want abortion, which... There can't be that many women who want to abort their children, but whatever. Okay, 
you could count some of the numbers for that, but it doesn't really reflect the reality there is that even with those numbers, Republicans should have won a lot more, even with the cheating. But they didn't, and I think there's one main reason that they didn't. The biggest reason, other than the cheating, is because Republicans have lost their momentum. In 2020, people were turning out by the thousands to vote for Donald Trump. And we saw what happened. Those people were ignored, and they stole the votes. Well, they stole the elections. And since then, I've heard a lot of people say, I'm done voting. And I've kind of felt that way in a certain sense, but not because I know they're going to steal the election. The reason I voted for Donald Trump was because he was the first one worth voting for in I don't know how long. Everyone else was just not worth voting for. The Republican Party wasn't worth voting for. I still don't think as a party they're worth voting for. I can't understand anyone who would identify as a Republican at this point. We're looking at right now the the Republicans are corrupt thoroughly. Trump is the one who came in and tried to set things right. I don't know if he didn't try hard enough or if he made mistakes or he got fooled. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is Trump was the first guy who gave us someone worth voting for. But in that, in that year, when we discovered that there might be someone who could turn this around, he didn't turn around, but we thought maybe there could be someone who would turn around, we discovered that we're not alone. And we discovered that we have each other. And so we realized our numbers are a lot better than we thought. Well, since then, other politicians have come up are trying to jump on this Trump wagon. I don't know if I call, I'm not I'm not trying to say that they are not sincere. What I'm trying to say is momentum started and it started in the Republican Party but not necessarily by Republicans, certainly not by rhinos. But we got some momentum going. And then what happened? They stole the election and a whole bunch of people swore off voting. They say, I'm never voting again. Why? Because they don't listen to the vote, because they stole the vote, which I think is the wrong attitude. If they give me someone to vote for, I will vote. And especially now, the uh, local elections are much more important than they used to be because of the changing abortion laws. So, yeah, I did vote. But I know a whole bunch of people who did. And I, I can count off just off the top of my head, 10 people who voted in 2020 who did not vote in 2022. So the what I want to point out is that the reason we lost so big, the reason we didn't win as well as we wanted to win is because Republicans didn't vote. And it's precisely because they were so disheartened by what happened in 2020. The Democrats not only set out to conquer us, but they wanted to destroy our enthusiasm. And that's apparently exactly what they did. 
not only did they put their guy in when everybody knows that our guy is the one who won, but they picked the most despicable character, the most useless character they could find just to show us not only can we beat you, but we don't even have to have someone worth voting for. We can get the worst guy we can come up with combined with the worst BP, and we'll still beat you because we're going to cheat. And when they did that, it just it sucked all of the enthusiasm right out of the air, and suddenly people aren't voting anymore. And that's what happened in 2022. Nobody voted. That's why we lost. We can blame it on all these other things like abortion and uh, the youth vote and whatever. But we lost because no one voted. That's not to say we would have won if people had voted. I don't know. Maybe they would have just cheated more. But we lost because no one voted. And I'm not uh, wanting to point out the wrongness of not voting. But I would point out, it doesn't hurt you to vote. It doesn't do any harm to go in and, and fill out a ballot. Maybe it'll be ignored. Maybe not. You can even say definitely it'll be ignored. But I think you do have a have a, a, a duty to at least try. And a lot of people didn't. And that's why we lost. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, real briefly is my trip to El Paso last week. Uh, I was supposed to come back to Cincinnati on Saturday night, which meant I would be able to go to Latin Mass Sunday morning. But I got held over, and I had to come back Sunday afternoon. And so on Saturday night, I'm looking around thinking, well, i got to go to Mass now. And I hate going Mass in a city that's not my city. But whatever, I got to find someplace. Lo and behold, in downtown El Paso, they have a Latin mass at the FSSP. Um, so I went there, and it was, a, it was a really nice church, charming little church. Lots of artwork, statues, everything you could want, except size. It was a very small church. Um, they had three masses, I think. I went to the earliest one, the low mass, and it was pretty packed. There were a couple empty seats, but uh, not really, because it's when you know how it is, especially since COVID, people don't like cramming in next to each other. Um, and now we have an excuse not to do that. We'd all COVID, we don't sit right on top of each other. What's more, they didn't have pews, which means they didn't have kneelers. I think the pews are probably being refurbished because it, it looked to me like it was under construction. So I think the chairs were temporary and maybe they'll be back. But when I went in, I, there was a guy walking in next to me. I said, is this where they got the Latin mass? He said, yes. Um, and then when I got in there, I was looking for this little red missile. I said, do they have missiles? He said, no. I said, All right. I'll use my phone. I used my phone, went to mass, uh, pretty much the exact same mass that I go to in Cincinnati. Uh, which is wonderful. And then after Mass, um, you know, I had to head back to my hotel to get a plane and stuff. Um, but the guy followed me outside, the guy I'd talked to on the way in, and he introduced himself, 
and I can't remember the name. It was a it was a Mexican name, a Latino name. It was like Jose or Ramon or something like that. I wish I could remember it, but he said, hold on, I got something for you. He ran back to his car and grabbed a, a little Daily Missile uh, book and gave that to me. So now I've got a missile that I can travel with. Um, I'd like to thank him. I don't know his name. It was a kind of a short, older guy, maybe 50s, um, kind of, had kind of long hair, gray. If anyone goes to that mass and knows his name, let me know and tell him thank you. Uh, also, there was, there was a lot of, just like the mass here, there's a lot of families there. I sat in the back next to a woman who had a few kids, one of them a baby. The baby made an awful lot of noise. Um, I very much wanted to lean over and say something encouraging, like, hey, it gets better. Uh, but I'm kind of shy in public, so I did not do that. Um, but anyway, if someone wanted to let me know his name, they could use the contact us page on our website, which is a podcast about Catholic things dot com. Speaking of that, speaking of communication, um, over the couple years we've been doing this, we've brought up maybe we should use Twitter or Facebook or whatever to try to promote some kind of social networking, and we never do. the The reason is because both of us have jobs and a pretty chaotic, hectic, busy life, and we just don't have the time to devote to promoting the podcast. And so I think once or twice we tried, we started to, and then it fell off after a week or two, so we never looked back. Um, Occasionally, people reach out to friend me on Facebook because I I think there's a way – because I do have a podcast about Catholic things page on Facebook under my name and people have tried to reach out to me that way and friend me. Uh, I don't want to seem antisocial. It's just that I only use Facebook as a way of communicating with people that I know, like my kids and stuff like that. Like some of them have phones, but not service. So we communicate through Facebook messenger and that's the only thing. And I do post the uh, podcast when I remember But usually that's the only thing I use for Facebook. For that reason, I do not friend people that I don't know face-to-face, which, I don't know, seems kind of jerky, but it's just people who have tried to become friends or followers or whatever of stuff that we do, it might seem like we're kind of hands-off and snooty and snobby. That's not it. It's just that I only use Facebook for this one thing. Every now and then I accept a friendship um, because I think the person who friended me is another person. I think, oh, maybe they got the last name of someone I know. Oh, okay, yeah. And then I accept the friendship, and then uh, sometimes they'll message me or somehow I'll suddenly realize, no, that's not the guy you know. That's someone else maybe a listener or something like that. And then I end up, again, not communicating at all, which seems really snobby. And 
I apologize for it. It's just that we do not use any kind of social networking platform in the show other than to post the shows. So I, if, if someone out there has tried to reach us through these means and you get nothing back, it's really because probably it might be a month before we even see that someone's trying to get a hold of us. And sometimes it's just that we, we don't use these means of communicating. If someone did want to communicate with us, really the only way to do it is to use the Contact Us page on the website, which is a podcast about CatholicThings.com or APACT.us. Those are really the only ways that you would be able to communicate with us. I apologize for that. It's just that we don't do this for a living. It's a side project, and we have so little time uh, because we're both very busy. Um, that's my explanation for that. I wanted to say that uh, at some point, and this seems like a good time to say it. So Now, I also wanted to point out something with uh, with the whole Ukraine and Russia thing, with this FTX stuff. Uh, obviously, now we know for sure that most of our involvement in Ukraine uh, revolves around money laundering. And let's see, I started saying this, I think, a month after the whole thing started, after the, quote, war in Ukraine started, either a couple weeks or a month after that, I started saying, hey, this is all about money. This is about moving large amounts of money. There's a bunch of crooked politicians getting rich off this. That's what the whole thing was. I didn't know the exact vehicle or the exact mechanism, but I knew from the start, and I told you from the start, this whole Ukraine thing is about money. So I just wanted to point that out and say once again, I was right from the start. Me and Danny were right about Ukraine from the start. We were right about COVID from the start. We've been right about almost everything we talk about from the start. Without further ado, I am going to put, I'm going to put all three of them right in a row in one recording. This is Dan's three-part discussion about uh, the temptations of Christ. I think it's very much worth listening to, and that's why I'm reposting them. This week we're going to talk about uh, the first temptation of Christ in the desert when he went out to the desert to fast and Satan came and tempted him. Um, but you know, <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. You are probably going to say the same thing. I keep thinking before we get into that, I we it just <laughs> seems like it's something we have to talk about. We can't yes. just let this go. Uh, the Pope comes out with this statement, and every news agency in America is reporting that the Pope has changed the church teaching on capital punishment. Right, right. And something that bears clarifying uh, is, I I guess there's a lot that bears clarifying in this because it can be very confusing um, to a lot of people. I mean, is this kind of like the Mormon church changing its teaching on black people? That's, I think a lot of people see it that way. Kind yeah. And then... Wait a minute, the church did 
Oh, the Mormon the church. The Mormon church, right. Remember when, okay. when they, you know, finally God said, oh, you know what? I changed my mind about black people. They're okay now. Um, you know, that's th- this is not one of those moments, but it could be very difficult for some people to understand why and understand the distinctions. Did the Pope change teaching? It, that, that itself is a question that doesn't get a yes or no answer, because here's why. Um, there are different kinds of teaching within the church. So there are teachings that the popes can, can make and that the bishops can make that as long as the content of the teaching is um, within the constraints and, and within the, the broader defined teachings of the church, we're bound by a certain religious obedience to give the assent of our intellect to those teachings. Um, but those teachings aren't teachings in the sense of being definitions. They're not teachings in the sense of being fixed doctrinal propositions that we know are never going to change. They're not dogma. So when you say, well, did the Pope change teaching? Well, he changed something that in some context could be labeled with the word teaching, but he didn't change the teaching of the church in any okay. doctrinal sense. And it's important. That's that's one of those distinctions that's important to point out. Now, um, Ratzinger, when he was Ratzinger, before he was Pope Benedict, um, had written uh, this document on what kind of things you as a Catholic could believe in or be in uh, difference with the church in and still uh, consider yourself a Catholic in good standing. For example, um, if you were going to proclaim your support for something like abortion, you cannot consider yourself a Catholic in good standing. Right. And you can't go to communion. You're not a Catholic if you, if you, if you support abortion. Um, but then he mentioned specifically the death penalty and uh, there was, another, I think, war. Mm-hmm. And, and whether or not there were just wars and whether or not you support a war, um, you could be in disagreement with the official statements from the church and still consider yourself a Catholic in good standing, which indicates to me you do not have to agree with the Pope right. on this subject. Right. This is this is clearly one of those things that he's not defining um, and I think the the a lot of the wording of even what he's changing in the catechism, and that's really all he's doing is changing the wording in the catechism. It's kind of clear from the wording of this that we're not looking at something that is a teaching as a universal, but rather an attempt to apply a sort of judicious discernment of the right application of certain principles of the faith to a particular situation. Um, yeah. And, and there's, and, and that same principle comes into case when you're, you know, comes into play when you're talking about war uh, as well. So I think this is one of those. Um, now, having come from the Pope, we should give it some weight. Um, we shouldn't be uh, nonchalant about disagreeing with the Pope 
Uh, however, this is not, as we've said, this is not one of those teachings that's that's uh, falls into the de- in, under under the uh, category of a definition of the church's doctrine. And to be sure, the death penalty itself is one of those things that has never. Um, been given that kind of attention by the church. The church has never come down with a definition of whether the death penalty is something that societies can use or not, uh, or whether it's something that can be justified within societies or not. As a matter of fact, in the uh, Catechism of uh, from Trent, mm-hmm. or the Council of Trent, uh, it does uh, it does s- support the use of capital punishment. Mm-hmm. And in, and of course, documents like uh, the Summa um, by St. Thomas Aquinas uh, also talks about, uh, you know, the the way you would amputate an arm that was diseasing the whole body. It talks about uh, killing people in society who are diseased uh, and, and infecting society. Right, right. So, so it's just... It's one of those things um, that that uh, this this so-called teaching is more a a matter of this pope's approach to this prudential um, sort of judgment about whether um, the death penalty fits within the message of the gospel, uh, and you know that's it's it's something that we should give weight to, but at the same time. Um, it's not uh, part of any doctrinal body of um, of teaching in the church. It's also something that definitely someday in the future we're going to have to do a podcast about, and maybe yeah. even a debate yeah, podcast. We, we should, uh, yeah, we should find someone to uh, um, maybe make sure that we have someone on both sides of the issue there for that. Yeah, I know someone on the other side. <laughs> Jason is. Uh, Jason has promised me that eventually he's going to take part in these podcasts, so uh, we'll, yeah, we'll see, see if we can't yeah. nail him down for that. I feel like if called upon, I could uh, successfully represent and argue uh, vigorously either side, so we could do it that way as well. Okay. <laughs> okay, so to today, today's topics, um, uh, first of all, there's a um, we have a question from someone uh, from oh, yeah. the previous podcast, right? Do you want, yeah, do you want to put that uh, question out? Um, I, I, I forgot to pull it up, but uh, I think it's uh, uh, John in Minnesota heard what you were saying in closing about the fact that Jesus, Jesus's nature, God's nature is one that when man offended him, whether we were going to take advantage of the uh, sacrifice that he made, whether we were going to take advantage of it or not um, doesn't matter so much that he still need to he still needed to make that sacrifice in order to uh, I can't remember how you so put it satisfy the justice of the father. In fact, the the argument I would make is is not just regardless of whether we would take advantage that even if God didn't have that component of mercy and love that invites us to take advantage if you want to think of it that way, of his sacrifice, okay. he still would have had to somehow fulfill that perfect justice uh, by restoring to himself what was taken by us. 
And okay. he did that by becoming a creature and then making a sacrifice as a creature, but also as the person of God so that it was a infinite, a super abundant sacrifice. So, so the so, question, the question was, well, what about the offense of, uh, Lucifer and all of the angels in heaven that rebelled against him, does he still have to do this to exact that justice? Um, and the answer, I think, is yes. Uh, and I think that the sacrifice of the cross actually repays to the Father all the injustice of the entirety of creation, not just those committed by men, but all of creation, including the fallen angels. Uh, however, it's important to realize that even saying that, um, <clears throat> the uh, angel, the fallen angels can't be saved. So salvation is something that, once having fallen, was never going to be open to them. Uh, it's one of those things that part of the nature of uh, their creation, part of the nature of their act of will uh, by which they either joined the father and, and joined God or turned away from him. Um, part of that puts them outside of the possibility of salvation. It's not a defect in the mercy of God. It's just the nature of how they are and how God created them to to make that one-time decision. And now, having made that, the fallen angels cannot be saved, nor is there a possibility for a second rebellion among the uh, the non-fallen angels. It's, it's part of the nature of their choice that once having made it, that's now uh, who they are, so to speak. However, those that offense that those fallen angels uh, created by their fall, by their rebellion against God, yes, I think... Even that, uh, even if God hadn't created, you know, mankind, somehow God would have had to find a way to become part of his creation and then offer some kind of sacrifice as a created being to repay to the Father that justice, uh, you know, which was denied him in, in their obedience or in their disobedience. So that's my okay. answer. Um, now okay. I, I, uh, I'll be honest after we received this question, I actually did some searching to try to find if I could find anything about this. Um, at least, you know, on the internet, very superficial searching. I didn't go to libraries or anything, but, um, I really can't find anything. And I think the reason is because even theologians have not really, um, to, to, that I can find tried to deal with that question. The, the more interesting question for theologians has been, can the angels be saved? If not, why not? And so forth. And, and there is some Catholic teaching behind my explanation of that. But I haven't really found a treatment of the question of, did the fall of the angels then require something like the sacrifice of Jesus in order to restore that perfect justice within God? Uh, but anyway, that that's my answer to, uh, you, you said it was John, right? That's my answer to John's uh, question. Yeah. And... Um, and and by the way, you know, it's a good time for a disclaimer here. This is a podcast about Catholic things. We're not claiming to represent the church. What we're trying to do is 
just have a discussion as two brothers who are committed Catholics um, about things of interest to Catholics. Um, <clears throat> and there may be some things that, that uh, somebody out there, one of our listeners, finds something that we said that that maybe uh, we said something wrong. You can find some, you know, documentation of that or whatever. Please send it to us. We would welcome that, and uh, you know, then we could open up the discussion I, again. I I uh, like to leave that open. If you have any way to uh, uh, refute whatever Danny says, send it to me right away, and uh, I'll make sure he hears oh, it. Sure, you. <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> okay, so. <clears throat> Today's uh, topic, first temptation um, of Christ. So, so I think most people listening to this know the story. Uh, I'm going to recap it. Um, anyway, Jesus goes out into the desert um, to fast for 40 days. Um, and while he's out there, Satan appears to him. And, and uh, we've got a recording of three distinct temptations. The first one of which... And they all seem to be a little bit of a challenge type of temptation. If you're the son of God, surely you could do this. And Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, you could turn these stones into bread. Now, what I don't exactly remember is uh, whether this first, whether the temptations themselves occurred at the end of the 40 days after he had spent his time fasting or was it during the 40 days that he was out there do you do you remember uh i seem to i've always thought of it as toward the end of that time me too me too and that's that's been one of the puzzlements for me um regarding this temptation um because it seemed like well if he's already done his 40 days why not why, why would it be a bad thing you know to turn the stones into bread anyway and you know personally Growing up, and any time I bothered to think about this, I, I sort of came up with the uh, kind of unsatisfactory conclusion that, well, it must be that it would have been wrong to do just because Satan was the one who suggested it kind of thing, you know? Um, I don't know, Eric, what, what you ever came up with uh, when you thought about this temptation. You know, I never really thought about whether or not it was right or wrong. I kind of was at the point where it's like uh he just spent 40 days without eating why did you think this was going to stump him well that's a good point too i you know because it's you know not that long before he's going to walk back into town or ride back into town whatever he's going to do and he'll probably sit down at a tavern and eat yeah anyway why was it wrong anyway because eating bread is not wrong (laughs) no eating bread's not wrong and when you consider that the stones themselves were created by God, uh, and we know that all of creation, you know, the, uh, in the creed we say, you know, that, uh, you know, through him, through the Son, all things were made. So all of creation was through Jesus, um, the, the second person of the Trinity. And so effectively, he made the stones, he makes the wheat that is turned into bread, and so all of it is his anyway, and to you know, turn one into the other, why would that be so bad? And I think there's a lot of symbolic reasons why it it couldn't work, it, 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 and it shouldn't work, and he shouldn't do it. So, for example, uh, if you look at his answer to Satan, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Well, later, what was he going to, going to do? He was going to, at the Last Supper, and of course, there was no way to realize this was where it was going until after it happened. But at the Last Supper, he took bread and he turned it into himself, his body, and he gave it to us to consume. So now we're consuming bread, but not bread alone, because it's not even bread it's at this word. point. It's the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. He's the complete Word of the Father, the Logos. And so now he's turning that bread into the Word. But, you know, there's another aspect of it, too, which is this, that Jesus wants to work within the constraints of combining God's action with human labor, with human work. Um the bread itself, you know, it had to be bread that he used at the Last Supper because bread is not just, you know, it doesn't just show up in nature. You don't just go, you know, pick it off a tree. You have to harvest the wheat and then grind it into flour and then knead it into the bread and then bake the bread. There's human labor involved in that. Uh, and, of course, the same thing with the wine that gets turned into his blood uh, at the Last Supper. And so bread is a very human labor-intensive thing. Even though the wheat originally comes from the earth and is kind of a gift from God, there's human labor involved. And Jesus is kind of this way with almost everything he does. If you look at all of his miracles, they involve some kind of, of human work, even if that work is a very simple thing. You know, go wash your eyes in the pool. Pick up your mat and walk. Lazarus, come out. It's always a action command that he gives when he performs his miracles. Um, I think maybe the closest he came to not doing that was when the centurion came out uh, and met him at the edge of town uh, to ask for his servant to be cured. But the centurion had already done the work. He came out to the edge of town to meet Jesus. He didn't wait for Jesus to get into him. Uh, the other kind of exception what about the, could be the what loaves about and the fishes. Water. What water? Water to wine? The, yeah. Oh, you, the wedding at Cana. Well, yeah. you know, he didn't uh, He didn't just turn all the water into house into wine. Before he turned it into wine, he made the servants fill the water jars. There were jars that, that previously had been used for water that was, uh, you know, used for the ritual ablution, the cleanings that, that Jews had to do, you know, when they came to somebody's house or whatever. So they had six of these these jars that he told the servants to fill with water. Each of these jars is like 20 to 30 gallons. Uh, and that would have been too big for them to carry full. So that means they had to transport the water to the jars and fill them in place bit by bit until they were full. Now, that was a lot of labor. And I'm sure that those servants were, you know, just thinking he was a crackpot. What's this guy doing, you know? Um, so even that, in fact, that's, that, that miracle is probably one of the most labor intensive miracles that he's performed. Mo you know, everybody else kind of got off easy. Um, that's a lot of wine. <laughs> that's, I know, 120 hey, to 180 gallons there, you know, that's. <laughs> if you're going to have a kager, Jesus is the one to invite. That's right. That's right. I would bring like a 12 pack and then say, Jesus, Hey, we're out of beer. <laughs> Get some water, quick. <laughs> Everybody, let's go get water. That's right. <laughs> so, anyway, that's, yeah, that's uh, certainly one of the aspects of, of Jesus' work. It includes 
human labor. So it would have violated that uh, idea to just turn the rocks into bread without any human involvement at all. Um, in fact, you know, when it comes to it, he could have just divinely, you know, made his hunger go away and, and, you know, put, you know, repaired his body from the lack of food without even eating. But he didn't want to do that. His, his mission included being a human like us and, and living within the constraints of human nature. And yes, he did perform miracles, but he did that by asking for something from the father and then involving some kind of human action with it. Um, and you know, the, uh, the, the teachings, well, I don't know if this is doctrine, but I know that it's always been explained that when we pray for miracles or if, if a miracle happens, it is always for the glorification of God, not necessarily just to help us. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, always uh, goes toward the glorification of God. And if it doesn't, it's probably not a miracle. Well, that's a good point, too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, even the uh, resurrection of Lazarus, you know, and Jesus kind of made a deal that, um, you know, he's giving glory to the Father here. And he said, I always give you glory, but I say this for those, you know, who are standing around. Um, and, you know, this kind of touches what we were talking about uh, last week in that um, the, the, the fact that God wants us to take part in our salvation. When we said that when, when you fast and when you offer it up, you are participating in uh, your salvation, which is what God wants, his participation. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So that's, so those are the kind of, um, you know, that's the one side of this temptation, but there's also a little bit of another side and, and it also goes to the mission of Jesus. And I, you know, I thought of this, it, all of this kind of came to me rather recently. I mean, within the last few years, um, but I, I thought of this while thinking about the uh, agony in the garden. And um, I don't know if you remember, uh, Eric, we were having a discussion about the agony in the garden and, and kind of the, I think we were actually talking about the play Jesus Christ Superstar. And we were talking about the agony scene in that and how well it yeah. might represent, you know, what Jesus was really going through and, and what he was feeling. And I, kind of got to thinking about that after we had that discussion and yeah i think we kind of disagreed uh, on something on yeah. certain parts of it but it it i i it got me to ask the question why was there an agony in the garden why did jesus even make this request i mean jesus knew where everything was going he knew what he was going to do he knew that he was going to be crucified and and everything that that meant why bother to make this request? And, and you know, you could say, well, it's only to show an example of always wanting to do the will of the Father. Well, that's that's not a small thing, okay? But I think it goes deeper than that. I think there's something more significant there. And here's what I eventually came up with, and, and 
this thought is what kind of led me to my thoughts on the first temptation. But throughout all of Jesus' life, even though he was always serving the Father and always perfectly obedient to the Father, most of what he did, you could also find a human motivation to do. You, in other words, his human nature and his human will um, in some satisfaction of some kind of human inclination might be inclined to do these things anyway. Not, not necessarily the totality, totality of them, but all of the various individual things um, are things that, while obeying the Father, there's also a mixture of perhaps some real human desire to do these things. Whereas now we've come to kind of the end game. This is, this is the finale. He's going to die on the cross, and, and at the end of that he even says, it is finished. So here's our finale coming up, and this is something that humanly there's no possible way he could want to do. So I think the reason for uh, the agony in the garden and the reason that he was even led to the garden was specifically to ask the Father, is there any way out of this? I think he had to make that request so that the Father could say no. And the reason is, remember that it was purely an act of disobedience, not not an act of malice towards somebody or anything like that. It was purely an act of disobedience that lost our original justification. And so the the final act... Are you uh, bumping around back I'm there? I'm sure. <laughs> I, did, I did thump around. I had to change rooms oh, because okay. I could hear kids in the background, okay. which I'm going to have to edit out. Yeah. So I moved to a different room, and now I'm on battery. And ah, All right. We'll still come through the same? Yeah, probably will. So, okay. So I'll, <clears throat> what I was saying was, the um, so through an act of disobedience, we lost original justification, and therefore the restoration of our justification and the reconciliation of the universe to God had to occur through an act of obedience. And this was the significance of Jesus asking in the garden, is there any way that this cup can pass without me drinking? Uh, Because then, having asked that and been told no by the Father, his death on the cross was purely an act of obedience and nothing else. There, there was no reason for him to do this except that the Father said, I want you to do this. And I think that's the real significance of the agony in the garden. Now, yeah, that's pretty powerful. Well, and <laughs> it's not something I've ever thought about. So, well, you kind of made me think of it. So, you know, um, but anyway, I for some reason I happened to be I don't know thinking about that time at, and just at the right moment my my thoughts crossed. I really I rarely have two thoughts at the same time. I'm I'm you know <laughs> I don't have the capacity for that. But but this time it did, and it and it occurred to me that that also is a little bit of a key to understanding the first temptation, uh, which is this. Uh, in addition to everything we've already said about, you know, wanting to be fully human and the involvement of human work, there's this. Jesus's entire mission is to be, through his whole life, 
an offering to the Father. He's, he's here to do the Father's work and to serve the Father. If he were to do this thing, to take, let's say, advantage of his divinity, his power to turn these rocks into bread, and to use that not only not for the service of another person, not for the glorification of the Father in any sense, but purely and entirely to serve his own personal hunger, that would pretty much bring an end to his mission. Um, and so hmm. that's the other aspect of that temptation, I think, that, that sometimes maybe gets missed, um, that... Satan, and I don't know whether Satan, you know, would have recognized the significance of this, but by asking this of Jesus, especially if, you know, there's this, okay, the fast is over. Well, sure, it would be okay to eat bread and, you know, all these things, you know, it's a long walk back to town. I could just get a bite right here real quick. Uh, all of those human thoughts that might go through somebody's head if they did have the power to do that, um, but weren't here on a divine mission. Well, because Jesus's mission is to be entirely not for himself, he couldn't do it. And uh, so that's um, that's the other. That, so there, there's two aspects to that temptation. It's kind of funny because both of them occurred to me at the same time, and I don't know what they have to do with each other. But well, did uh, was that part of the devil's uh, intention? Do you think did was he looking at this and saying, I, I mean, I wonder if that was in the devil's mind as he tempted Christ. I wonder that, too. In fact, I, I, I was reading some time ago, I think it was in high school at the time, that um, theologians, had, you know, even kind of debate whether the devil knew, for example, that this person, Jesus, was the son of God, was was, you know, the the second person of the Trinity, the one that, you know, that they, uh, in, in some narratives of the rebellion that, that the fallen angels refused to bow down before, did he know who this was? Uh, was he trying to figure out who this was? Uh, or did he know and, and he was trying to derail his mission somehow? You know, um, that's, that's been a little bit of debate. I don't think that there's any definitive answer of that. Um, within Catholic reading of the of the uh, the Bible there, but um, it's one of those interesting questions that that people have uh, tried to answer and have thought about. Well, you know what what kind of occurred to me is um, as you were talking about this. It, well, a couple things. It, if you look at it from the devil's point of view, or, or if you kind of take his way of tempting mm -hmm. and and put it on a timeline um starting off with adam and eve mm -hmm. um he did not know man uh very well and when he tempted adam and eve they he didn't use anything that he would have been tempted by he didn't use any kind of the passions uh, that we have to get him to do something wrong, he used what he knew, jealousy and pride and maybe uh, vanity. Mm -hmm. And right. those were the things that he was tempting Adam with. And he says, so, uh, you know, you, you want to be like God. He didn't mention the fact that uh, they they were good to eat. Now, Adam or Eve noticed that they were good to eat. Right. 
But he said nothing about that. And so that's how he gets Adam and Eve. And suddenly there's the fall. Now, the devil looks at this and he's got to be figuring things out now. He's he's gotten man to fall from God's graces and all of a sudden there's these these other things that would not have been a temptation to him and he probably doesn't understand as a temptation to us. Well, that's a like good hunger, point. yeah, lust and um uh vanity. Mhm. Or not well, vanity. Not vanity uh, is something sloth. Is, but, right. Yeah. So these three, the bodily pre- pleasures, he doesn't understand yet. But as he's watching, you know, for the next several centuries, that ends up being one of the easiest ways to get us. In fact, he doesn't even have to do anything. And man is, because of the fall, because of... Um, oh, concupiscence. Con- because of concupiscence, um, now suddenly, if we're hungry, that in itself is a temptation. And so if you're standing there, you're hungry, the guy next door has bread, and you want the bread, that in itself is a temptation, and he doesn't even have to do anything. But um, here Jesus is in the desert, not eating. And so after centuries of seeing man fall over and over again for these bodily pleasures, which he doesn't understand, that's the first one he goes for. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't quite understand why we fall for it. And now he doesn't quite understand why Jesus isn't. Doesn't, right. Because Jesus isn't subject to um, concupiscence. Mm-hmm. It just kind of uh, struck me yeah, that's uh, a... as you were talking. I thought, well, huh. There's, yeah, there's definitely uh, another uh, angle on it. I, I hadn't even thought of that. There's certainly some ignorance here on the part of the devil. Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to figure something out. And so that's his first line, and that's his first uh, attack, is on uh, possibly these other things as well, but still on the bodily pleasures, because that's what he's had so much success in Mm -hmm. over the past centuries. Right, right. That's a good point, you know, that that the devil, uh, even while he tempts us, with bodily pleasures doesn't himself really understand them he's he's um he's he's kind of using a uh it's like he's found a formula that works and and he's he's using it without really uh getting it uh but you know hey it works so just keep using it um it would be like uh if you're um if you've got an animal and you need to get them bred you don't really understand why the male wants to go after the female, but you know you can do it at certain times, and you know if you bring her in there, you're going to get a a baby animal. (laughs) So you put them together at the right times, and you know what's going to happen. And here the devil is uh, putting this temptation forward, expecting it to happen, because it's always happened in the past, or it's happened often in the past, and it's not working. Fortunately for us, it didn't work. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I think uh, I think I've kind of exhausted my thoughts on that. The first temptation we stretched out quite a bit. Um, we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one, I I mean, let's see where it goes. I I feel like there's not yeah. as much to say about it, uh, but who knows where conversations lead, right? So right. 
So you you wrote a little bit of a blog about it, and I read the blog, but I have no idea what you're planning to say today. So you go ahead and <laughs> tell me it what was, you were thinking about the second temptation. Well, okay, I'll tell you what, but it, and it's uh, probably going to closely follow the blog. The blog uh, is from like four years ago, uh, and then some. And I had to go back and reread it to refamiliarize myself with my line of thinking about this. Um, the second temptation, this is the one where the devil takes Jesus to a, uh, a high parapet. Uh, some um, interpretations, I think, just say a high place. And he says, hey, if you're really the son of God, uh, surely you could throw yourself down from this place and the angels will come and, and bear you up and they won't let you come to harm. And he even has a, a scripture quote to go along with it about the angels bearing up and so forth. And <clears throat> Jesus gives an answer. He says, uh, scripture also says, uh, you shall not put uh, the Lord your God to the test or you shall not tempt the Lord your God. A couple different ways of putting that as well. And this one was always uh hard for me to understand on multiple levels first of all um why would it be wrong let let let's suppose you know Jesus did go ahead and take the jump uh obviously he knows he's the son of god and he also knows that he's not going to come to harm in fact he even knows that that by his own power as as uh sharing the nature uh, with the Father and, and his divinity, he can keep himself from coming to harm. I mean, he can fly, right? He can walk on water, he can fly, whatever. Um, so there's a kind of a question of, well, what exactly is Satan tempting Jesus to anyway? Why is it a temptation? And, and why would Jesus want to do it, even acknowledging that he could? Uh, why is this a difficult temptation in any sense? Uh, you know, why is it an easy walk away? And um, I don't really have a uh, a story for how I happened on this, but it it's one of those things that you know you meditate on these things and and sometimes thoughts just come to you. And uh, what I can come up with is that this is one of those cases again where the temptation for Jesus is to make it about himself in this case and not the Father. Obviously, Jesus could have done this, but in doing so, he would be glorifying himself because the real challenge here that Satan's throwing down is a challenge to Jesus's right to the title of son of God. And so Jesus is, if he were to follow through with this, he would be claiming that title to himself in a way that doesn't give glory to the father. Now, we know that later during his ministry, Jesus clearly identified himself as the Son of God. Um, but he did so in a way that he was always deferring to God. Um, he was saying, you know, I'm here and you're called to follow me, not because of me, but because of him who sent me. Um and so when we see the second temptation, uh, Satan is challenging that title and uh, Jesus is called to resist making it about himself. In fact, 
if you think of Jesus's own response to Satan, you know, Scripture says, don't put the Lord to the test. Uh, this is as much a rebuke of Satan as it is uh, perhaps Jesus's own um, fortifying himself uh, to resist this temptation. Uh, but in any case, Satan's trying to turn Jesus away from his mission of being about the Father. Now, <clears throat> the interesting thing about this temptation is that it recurs several times uh, in the future uh, when Jesus is in his passion. So at the garden, um, remember the uh, soldiers came to arrest Jesus and, and in one account Peter comes up with a sword and, and he strikes the high priest's ear and Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that if I called on my father, he would not hesitate to send 12 legions of angels. I, I forget the exact number. I think it's something like that. Um, Wait a minute. He said that in the garden? He said that, yeah, when Peter was... was when, when did you think he said that? I just... it's In the garden, he said, uh, he, he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. And yep. uh, that's all I really remember. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's, he said a couple different things in a couple of different accounts. And then, and, and you know, there's the, uh, um, the one account where he heals the, uh, the, the ear of the, um, high priest's servant. Yeah. Uh, after St. Peter cut it off with the sword. And, um, but anyway, see, here's, here's this point. This is the moment they're coming for him and he's giving himself over to them. And, even now we see that that this must be a, a temptation. I mean, here he was just an hour before praying to the Father, asking, "Can you? Is there any way that that this cannot happen? That this can pass me by? Can this cup pass me by?" And so an hour later, here he is, and this is it. They're taking him. He's giving himself over to them, and yet he's got this possibility, this this reality that he could call on the Father. He could he could make it about himself instead of about the Father's will, and he even says that to Peter. Don't you know that that you know this this has to happen by my allowing it to happen. If if I were to call on my Father, yeah. it would be over, you know, uh, without a struggle. So okay. So <clears throat> that's another case where the temptation kind of uh, sort of peeps its head up it's it's not full on now but there's and another in, uh, case. a couple other times when he's hanging on the cross and he and everybody else is trying to tempt him well exactly come down from the cross exactly that's you know the uh in fact the, the it's kind of funny because the words almost echo the words of satan you know surely if you're the son of of god and this is what the people say hey if you're the son of god come down from that cross show us we'll believe you know um and so that's it's not only a uh a sort of taunting temptation not only a uh a temptation to glorify himself but even that temptation to accomplish something that he could in a human way justify as a good result hey it'll get people to believe right 
if I come down from the cross, then everybody standing here will believe, and that'll create this this immediate surge of faith for the start of the church. Well, of course, uh, deeper reflection uh, allows us to see that no, it could not have happened that way. It had to happen the way it did. Um, but that's the temptation. And, uh, huh. <clears throat> so, and you know, for us, I think that's always a temptation, you know, that Jesus warns us against throughout his ministry. He's telling us to not make our glory something that we strive for. He says, you know, when you give, don't let the the right hand know what the left is doing. Um, and he talks about both works of charity and prayer. Do it in secret. Then your father who sees all things will reward you. So, you know, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, Eric, when you even approached me with this podcast idea, um, you know, this is one of those big things that it's a really big kind of temptation for me is to think about glorifying myself. I mean, my, you approached me with this podcast and, and to my shame, perhaps some of my first thoughts were, oh yeah, that would be so cool because, you know, Eric comes up with really good stuff and I'll get to have my name in there and be associated with doing good things and have people recognize me as dispensing wisdom and so forth. And I don't even have to be the wise one. But, you know, well, it was... I, this was all about my glory. You're not getting any of the glory. <laughs> I don't know well, why you, know, you were so... thinking that. Well, you see, that's the temptation, though, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so... Uh, but that's, looks... but you know, that's that's the thing. And, and, of course, I don't know how anybody who's, who's in kind of a... Uh, a public spotlight resists that temptation because to me that's always there. I love, you know, being recognized for, uh, for just about anything that, you know, that's, uh, that's worthy, you know, whether it's, sure. it's goodness or smartness or whatever. <laughs> but, um, but you know, this is something that Jesus has several times reminded us, uh, not to seek our own, uh, glory especially in fact he even says that those who uh perform good works in a way that others can see it in a way that's ostentatious and draws attention to themselves they've already received their reward <clears throat> and so where does that leave you then if if that's you know if that's what you're doing so it's it's kind of it almost sounds like boring and cliche and so what to to say oh well this temptation yeah he just he he was just basically being tempted to show off and he had to resist the temptation to show off that that it's hard to not reduce it to that and to see how deeply important uh this uh humility is that uh that is associated with this temp this second temptation well, see, as a as a kid, I always looked at that and thought, um, like, maybe he's being tempted, like, for thrill-seeking, like bungee jumping. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that. <laughs> you can't deny the coolness factor of that. that would be a big temptation for me. <laughs> wow, just jump. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay. So, one of the questions, a couple questions. Number one... Do you think Satan at this point in time is still 
unsure of whether or not this is the son of God. Um, do you think he knows this? This is the one John the Baptist wasn't the one. This is the one. You know, that's something that I know that that theologians have have toyed back and forth with. I have to admit to not having a particular opinion about it. Um, It's, you know, the thing is, Satan has had however many thousands of years of watching human history and working to try to destroy uh, humanity. Uh, Clearly, Satan has seen in the Jewish people... Um, God's calling them and God's special treatment of them. Uh, But has he figured out what place that's going to play in this idea that they're going to uh, be the source that the Jewish, the the Hebrews, the Israelites are going to give birth to the Savior? And, And has he even figured out that plan enough to, you know, to to think in terms of a one or to recognize that that one is is really the self same. I, I think he would recognize that the one is going to be that that same, uh, you know, son of God, the second person of the blessed Trinity, because theologians seem to generally agree that that's what the rebellion of the angels was over. So, yeah. uh, so well, I'm just you know, saying, but I mean, if... does he know this is the one? I, I don't know. I it almost feels like he part doesn't. Of the temptation. Um, is oh, that what to, he's getting at? To, it's to like, prove, like, are you the guy I'm supposed to be fighting and prove it? Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's uh, you know that that could be that uh, that that Satan himself is even a little bit unsure, or even a lot unsure. Um, in fact, that yeah. I I I've heard of one theological um, opinion that Satan didn't fully realize who Jesus was and what God's plan was and how salvation was going to work until the last moments during the crucifixion, once Jesus was on the cross. And then by that time, Satan was powerless to do anything to stop it because he's incapable of inspiring good intentions in anybody that might have been able to uh, stop it from happening. That's kind of how it was uh, shown in uh, Mel Gibson's movie. That mm-hmm. uh, the same, he just keeps pushing all these people toward violence against Jesus. And he's even showing off about it. And then in the end, all of a sudden, he realizes, and, and kind of the same way in uh, C.S. Lewis's um narnia books it it was the the lion was there and and the witch felt really good because she was going to kill the lion that was there to save them right and then at the last second it's like whoa wait a minute i just uh i just allowed uh the human race to be saved Mm -hmm. right right so well one of my thoughts about this is the um the fact that i i think we all kind of put God to the test in ways that we don't we don't really think about it we don't we don't go to dangerous situations and and then like dare God to save us but a lot of times we pray about things and at least I do this I know I I have done this um 
I, I would pray maybe I've got some big decision to make, like which job to take that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with morality. But um, I have a t- hard time deciding which job to take. And then I say, I'm going to do this. And if God stops me from doing it, then I'll know that uh, I'm not supposed to do it. Or if mm-hmm. God does this or sh- comes up with signs to say, I'm not going to do anything unless I get this sign or I'm, <laughs> I'm only going to do this if I get this sign. Right. And it, it kind of a temptation to God to put the weight of responsibility for making a decision on his shoulders when, um, and, and and relying on him to change your answer if you're making the wrong decision. Right. Holy cows. Hold on. What? I just realized I didn't have my computer plugged in. Oh. <laughs> Let's see. Do I get got that, power yet? Get that got battery, that battery going. going. <clears throat> <laughs> Almost there. Did you hear did you hear a beep? No, I didn't. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it is going now. <laughs> okay. Um Okay, so then, I mean, we, we instead of asking for guidance and then just making our decisions, we try to put it in a way that um, it would be po- impossible to make a bad decision. And then I think there's, I think this is a problem because we will often make bad decisions and mm-hmm. it's really got nothing to do with God's will. <laughs> it's just that we've done something that's going to make us miserable in the future. And then when we're miserable, if we had made one of those things where like, well, if this is your will, do this. Oh, we'll be tempted then to blame nothing God. nothing happened. Yeah, because yeah. it's like, well, now I, I, now I hate this job that I'm in and I have to go there every day anyway. And it's all your fault, God. Why didn't you stop me? Yeah. And it's not always the role that God plays in our life. He gave us, uh, he gave us free will not just free will, but he gave us um, wit and uh, understanding and knowledge to figure out how we should do things. And a lot of times we're going to do things that uh, we look back on and say, well, that kind of was a bad decision or I could have made a better decision. Mm -hmm. And then it's not... It's not like fate where um, you're supposed to do this. It's more like you can do either one and then one might make you miserable. And now your decision is how to handle that misery. Right, right. And we we look at all these choices that we have to make and we think that there's something we're supposed to do. As if from the beginning of time, this job was for me. And it's... It, it, I know it's kind of tempting to think of life that way, but life isn't that way. We've got, I, I don't, I think there's very few things in life that people are supposed to do as part of God's plan. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jesus even said, many are called, but few are chosen. There are very few people who God chooses to do a very specific task. Mm-hmm. Right. But right. he, he opens up salvation to us in no matter where we are and no matter what decisions we've already made. And that's always open to us. We can always take 
a bad situation and make it better um, by choosing to do different things or by just offering it up. Right. I, I, I kind of feel like it's on the, you're kind of tempting God by saying, um, God, keep me from doing this if this is a wrong decision. Right. Instead, the better way to do it is just ask God for guidance and knowledge and wisdom and understanding and then make the decision. And, um, you know, another thing is when you say something like, I'm going to go to church every morning. And then the first morning you sleep late because your alarm clock went off in the middle of the night. And then there's this thing where you want to dismiss your decision and because it was a hard decision and say, well, God must not want me to go to church every morning oh, because right. yeah. the alarm clock went off. Yeah, And you're, you're kind of putting God to the test, mm-hmm. in a sense, when you put on his shoulders these decisions that you have to make. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's true. Because you know, I mean, if if your alarm went off in the middle of the night, uh, you know, you said, "Well, gee, God, what? You know, you don't want me to show, show up at church, right?" And you know, God's obviously, uh, you know, his mind is uh, probably somewhere along the lines of, "If you want to go to church, uh, go to church. If you don't, don't." But you know. Uh, don't put that on me. It's your free will. You can do it if you want, uh, even if your alarm did go off in the middle of the night. Um, and, and you know, the, the hardships are opportunities, um, sometimes opportunities to grow closer Order to God, to sometimes opportunities to grow in some specific uh, virtue like fortitude, sometimes just opportunities to reflect and uh, develop uh, even worldly wisdom so that we don't make similar mistakes in the future and uh, so forth. But the um, right to, to treat it as though somehow if we knew God's plan, uh, each moment in our life would kind of string together as as a series of um, of happy states um, just doesn't bear out. In fact, um you know, we see that even those who are called um, sometimes do things that uh, were not the right decision in in the worldly sense. You know, and, and it leads to some kind of misery or or whatever. Um, sometimes it's you know it's something that they did that's specifically sinful, but sometimes it's just that you know. Hey, they Just they thought this would mistake. be the outcome, and they made a dumb mistake, and it was a different outcome. Saint Francis of Assisi did that a lot. If uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there there was the the time he thought he was supposed to build churches because God said to see my church and rebuild it, so he went and uh, took his father's money to try to rebuild that specific building and things like that. Right, but you know having you know made mistakes the thing is he acted and that's one of the things is that uh part of putting god to the test can sometimes be a excuse for inaction um yeah. when acting is more important than 
whether you act this particular way or that particular way. Now, of course, when we, you know, as you explained, we're not talking about matters of do I do something sinful or non-sinful. It's just given two non-sinful uh, ways to approach something, given, you know, a decision, you know, I've got to take some kind of job. I have to feed my family. Do I take this one or that one? Uh, well, it's you've got to at least take one. You can't become paralyzed and say, well, since I don't know which job I'm going to take, God hasn't shown me yet. So therefore he must want me to sit around and wait and do nothing and not get a job and not have the money to feed my family. Yeah, that's very much, I think, uh, part of this temptation. And, and it's, and even that it's kind of like a, um, not necessarily in front of people, but in your own mind, it's, it's glorifying yourself. It's elevating to a level of, warranting special uh uh what's the word here uh, special commission by god aspects of your life that simply don't deserve that yeah yeah there's a little bit of pride there okay that's all i got so on it. yeah i think we've uh, kind of exhausted that temptation um but i think we're gonna hello folks this is a podcast about catholic things i'm eric engel here i'm with dan, dan engel, engel. You just wait your turn before you talk. All right, you sorry, wait man. For me to introduce yeah. you. Go ahead, okay. do it. <laughs> this is Dan Engel. Now, talk. okay, hi guys. Okay, we're talking about the third temptation of Christ. Last week we did the second, and the week before that we did the first. Um, and this is the one that, as a kid, I always scratched my head at this one because, as uh, it, it looks to me. We've got God, the creator of all things, the king of kings, being told by the devil who is subject to him that if he worships him, then he'll give him all this uh, ruling power, which he didn't need. And that always confused the heck out of me. Yeah, it did me too for uh, very much the same reasons. And um, this is one that I kind of hit upon this. Um, And and I'll tell you when. It it was during the time when uh, I don't know if it was live action or if it was some other group uh, that, but but they were basically going in and. doing their uh, kind of undercover at, at Planned Parenthood and going to, you know, act, acting the part of, of okay. you know, yeah. pimps running underage girls and that kind of stuff. And, and I mean, I mean, they were doing a wonderful job of really exposing the deep, deep evil that Planned Parenthood is. And, yeah. and I salute their work. Absolutely. But there was uh, for a brief time, a concern that some people brought up about, Hey, wait a minute. Um, as Christians, should we support this kind of activity since it involves lying? And so that was kind of like this this sort of test case thing for me. And I, you know, personally, I'm one of those who believes that every lie uh, is an offense to God. That that uh, to be quiet and to simply not speak, uh, there are plenty of times when that's okay. Um, you know, even if somebody asks a question, if they don't really have a right to the answer to simply not answer might be okay, but to 
to state a falsehood is so contrary to the nature of God that it can't fail to offend him. So even things like uh, undercover detective work and, uh, you know, lying to uh, suspects under interrogation and stuff like that, things that uh, have a real, we've come to accept them as having a real expedient value in our society, um, there's a question there about what, you know, where does that come in terms of a uh, a Christian perspective and the uh, offense to God that, that lies must have. It was, what about your wife? Yeah, I mean, you know, you 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 gotta. Does this make me look fat? Yeah, it's you know you know. I mean, do you, do you change the subject? And <laughs> would she see through That's that? What I do. <laughs> so, um, so it was while thinking about this that I it it kind of occurred to me then what the third temptation is all about. Um, because as you said, I mean, okay, everything belongs to God anyway, and, and uh, he doesn't have to worship Satan in order to, to have dominion over it. Why would he even be tempted to? But I think that what was going on here was that Satan was making, was offering a bargain. Now, a bargain he never intended to follow through on, being the father of lies himself. Uh, in fact, I think it's interesting that, that that's a specific title that God gives to Satan, the father of lies. Jesus refers to him as the father of lies. That shows how how much lying is contrary to the nature of God. But um, the offer that Satan's making is, hey, all you have to do is perform one little act of worship it doesn't hurt anybody it doesn't involve malice towards anybody it's a a victimless sin if you will and i'm gone i'm out of here i'll back off and i'll quit trying to to uh incite people to do evil i'll quit trying to cause natural disasters that create suffering for people i'll quit trying to turn people away from god uh it'll all be over and and you know, you can go on then ruling the world according to your peaceful designs. And I think that's the temptation that so many of us face in our own lives is this idea that by performing some little seemingly inconsequential act of wrong, we can bring some great good out of it. Um, of course, yeah. you know, one of the uh, cases where y- this kind of uh, conflict comes into place and, and, you know, when you say, well, lying's always wrong, you, you try to make that case to somebody and they always want to bring out, um, you know, an example like, uh, what if you're hiding Jews from the Nazis in your basement? Well, shouldn't you lie in order to save their life? Um, well, I, you know, I don't want to... I, I I don't want to ever call out somebody as as doing wrong who is hiding Jews in their basement or hiding black slaves uh on the uh underground railroad um for lying in order to maintain that um and and keep that going it's you know I'm not here to condemn anybody for that however if we look a little bit more closely at the third temptation and its meaning you know, 
when Jesus was offered this, he knew everything that was going to happen throughout history. He knew the entire, you know, 20th century history. He knew that all those Jews were going to be killed by the Nazi regime because of the work of Satan. He knew uh, the tens of millions that would be killed by Stalin because of the work of Satan um, and all of the other uh, smaller in numbers, but no less significant genocides of the 20th century. Uh, he also he knew stopped it. He, yeah, presumably that's the temptation. He could have stopped it with a simple act of worshiping Satan that wouldn't in itself have seemed consequential to anybody. Now, of course, that would have been the end of his mission, <laughs> you know, yeah. at that point, um, it all would have been over. However, uh, there's a deeper point here, which is that Jesus had such a complete trust of the father that he knew to trust the father's dominion over all these matters in spite of an apparent opportunity to accomplish this great good or to avoid some great evil with an act which would just be a matter of disobeying God, but not of any other consequence. And I think that's where sometimes it comes to us. I mean, you know, we've got the, the lies that we tell in order to maybe take advantage of some sale, um, you know, uh, employees or to make and, your wife happy or to make your wife happy employees and family only well okay i'll call you my brother um you know when we went to the zoo as cub scouts the uh, den mother said oh yeah these are all my children um in order to save on parking or something like that I don't, yeah you know but whoop sorry i just lost Drop my mouse uh, well just the mouse hold on i'm uh, i think i'm okay the mouse okay. what are you the doing mouse. with the mouse that's what I do. I, I use my a mouse. You hold the mouse. I'm you old... talking to it? You <laughs> there? <laughs> so okay. Um. So the point is, there's all these temptations to accomplish minor things, and sometimes there's temptations to accomplish big things or to avoid big things by doing some little inconsequential uh, act of disobedience to God. And that's the temptation that Jesus had. But in order to avoid that, it requires a really supreme trust that God has it in hand. Now, let's let's take that, what that trust would mean, back to the question of somebody hiding Jews from the Nazis. When you lie, if you've got Jews in your basement, you lie to, you know, the Gestapo that stops by or whatever, um, let's first of all be a little bit real. Okay, yes, your your lie maybe saves their lives, but in terms of motivation, you're lying as much to save your own life and to avoid your own uh, punishment as you are to save them. Uh, now, again, I'm not going to call out as as doing something wrong or as as making the wrong decision or I'm I'm not going to condemn anybody who who would lie in a situation like that or who has lied in a situation like that you know hats off to so many people this is yeah just a hypothetical thing and it's just kind of something to think about here in connection with this third temptation of Christ what if the real plan of the father what if the will of the father 
in his dominion over all things and his complete providence of all things was to be served not specifically by you saving your hide by telling that lie or not even specifically by those particular Jews uh, lives being saved by you telling that lie, but rather by, for example, your witness to the wrongness of what was being done to them by placing yourself between the Nazis and them and taking the consequences of that by joining them in whatever was going to happen to them. Maybe that's what God might have been calling somebody to do in a situation like that. Now, again, you know, like St. Maximilian kind of like, yeah. Um, I wonder if we should tell that story. Yeah, we we should briefly. Yeah. So, so, uh, do you know the, the backstory about the escape? I, I know that he was in a, he was in a camp with Jews and, uh, I think one escaped. Either escaped that, or tried to escape. I forget whether there was really an escape, but so the deal was he was going to the the guard there was or the warden was going to. Um, he said he's going to kill twenty Jews to for pay for the one the that one that escaped. escaped. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and uh, Maximilian had been had he had some kind of contact with one of them in there and, and was trying to convince him that God does exist and I, God loves him, something like that. I don't remember that part of it. What I remember is that one of the men who was going to be executed was a father. He had a family and St. Mac, and, and by the way, this execution, it wasn't being marched out and shot. It was being starved to death. It was a yeah. very painful execution. So Maximilian Colby said, this is just a numbers game to you. Take me instead of him. Right. And then, uh, they, they put him in a, in a, uh, little cell and stopped feeding them and stopped giving them water. How long? It was like 20 days. Oh, something like that. Yeah. Some just agonizing. I mean, you, you can only imagine, um, but yeah, that's that's a good. I hadn't even thought of Maximilian Colby when I was uh, when I was writing this stuff. And um, all of those, he uh, it from some of the accounts, all of those Jews were converted to Christians and were singing praises to God in the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Maximilian lived longer than they wanted him to, so they finally shot him. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So that's you know, but again, that's. You know, look what he was able to do with his willingness to uh, simply stand up and say, this is wrong. Uh, I'm going to join these people. And and like I said, I, I'm not I'm not trying to say that people who who, you know, lied their way along the the, uh, you know, moving Jews out of occupied areas or or black people along the uh underground railroad or whatever i this isn't a condemnation of anything they've done or how they've handled it it's it's just using the fact that these real situations did happen in history uh it's it's just using that as a little bit of of opportunity to reflect on this part of scripture that's what i'm doing here
because those are the kinds of things people always say, well, is it a sin in this case? Right, and, right. They want to so, press the hard cases. Yeah, okay. But if you want to, if you have a principle and you want to really think about whether or not you believe in that, the what you need to do is take it to an extreme and then test it. Yeah. And I mean, if, if you believe in this and you believe in it all the time and you can't just say it depends on the circumstances, if it's an actual principle that you believe in. Right. And that is what we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, the principle of absolute trust in the father and the father's plan and the father's dominion, that was the principle that was being tested in Jesus at this point. You know, the... Um, the Jesuits, when they were being sent into England, back when they were putting uh, Catholic priests to death, uh, when they trained the Jesuits to come in and, and uh, minister to the Catholics who were uh, here, um, they would train them on how to dodge questions about being a priest without lying. Oh, right, right. Right. And some people think of that as as a little bit of copping out um, or of, OK, you're just misleading anyway. Um, why not just lie outright uh, and, and treating it as though it would have been the same. But, you know, the. Um, That's I, how the Jesuits I, got that uh, reputation. reputation. Right. But, you know, the thing is, there's a real case to be made and they made it and they I think had a, an understanding of this at that time at least the Jesuits of that time that it's not a you know it's not it's not the uh, allowing people to draw the wrong conclusion the, the point is that that they were trying to be true to is that the nature of God does not allow one to speak falsely and and that's what they were trying to avoid um, now, you know, the, the, uh, oh, I had a thought in my head about that. <laughs> it's gone. I, well, while my, you're thinking about yeah. this, um, <laughs> um, you must have dropped your mouse and now you're lost. That, that must be it. <laughs> <laughs> it was the mouse. Without, without the mouse, I'm lost. <laughs> so the, uh, Satan is tempting Jesus in this way. And had he given in, there would be a lot less war, supposedly, uh, less natural disasters, less murder, and all the bad things that we do. But not a single person would have made it to heaven. Right, right. And that's that's the... Now, you know, Jesus, of course, to the extent that a human would be capable of understanding, he understood his relationship to the Father, certainly. Um, and he probably understood this as well. But that's really the temptation that Satan was laying down, I think, before Jesus. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I was going to say, you know, even Jesus allowed people to draw the wrong conclusion uh, sometimes. So, for example, uh, when the apostles were talking about who was going to be, you know, greater in the kingdom, and Jesus kind of came up on him. He knew what they were talking about, but he asked him, hey, what are you all talking about? And, you know, they all grew real quiet, of course, because they, 
you know, they suddenly felt ashamed that they had been bickering over that. Um, <clears throat> but you know, that I just making the point that, that, uh, you know, it's not that God doesn't allow, uh, people in their limited nature to misunderstand something, but God himself cannot issue a falsehood. And that's, that's what the Jesuits were really being true to in that training you were talking about. But, but you know, this, this third temptation, I mean, the, the, the lie thing, the reason the lie thing is such an easy one to come up with as a, as a analogy for the temptation is because lying itself in many cases is inconsequential in a, you know, in a worldly sense. And so, you know, um, so anyway, that's, I think I've exhausted my thoughts on the third temptation. 